Hello and welcome to the first episode of Mostly Weather, a podcast brought to you in association with the Met Office, which is the UK's National Weather Service. Each episode will bring together a crack team of weather enthusiasts from both here at the Met Office headquarters and from across the world of weather and climate to regale you with facts, anecdotes, statistics and stories around our chosen theme. So without further ado, let's introduce ourselves and the subject of this, our first episode. My name's Neil Robinson and I'm here with uh, Claire. Say hello, Claire. Hello, everybody. And this week we've got a special guest from the Met Office Archive, Catherine. Say hello. Hello, everyone. So this week we're going to be talking about the subject of weather forecasting through time. So I thought I would start off, guys, by saying, and I consider this to be a trick question, what's the oldest weather forecast? Ooh, the oldest weather forecast. Now, that is a good question. Mm. So, Catherine, this might be your special area of expertise. <laughs> well, so, I mean... to, so, the Met Office Archive has got loads of stuff to do with weather and the Met Office, right? So yeah, from history, tons. okay? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, it really depends on just how difficult you want to get about the word. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> the very first forecast under that terminology would have been produced in on the 31st of July 1861 yeah. by Rear Admiral Robert Fitzroy because he was the guy that coined the term forecast. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> nice get out. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so people have been trying to predict the weather for a long time, right? So yes, I guess I was thinking of stuff like folk forecasting. Yes, yeah, so foretelling the future, yeah. foretelling the weather has been going on for hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, and we, we've got we've got kind of examples of that with, you know, you know uh, the Shepherd Banbury's rules in the archive. So which, what are they? Um, it's kind of a set of rules for foretelling the weather, some of which we might recognise. Red sky at night is a classic. So is that, abs- is that part of these Banbury rules? Is yeah, it? It's one of the, it is one of them, yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, so did they just document all of these whether law that existed or... Yeah, I mean, the Shepherd of Burnbury's rules, I think they, they'd sort of been going around, um, if you like, verbally for hundreds of years, yeah. and then eventually somebody wrote it down, if you like, and I think most of it was sort of handed on sort of in, in folk te- folklore, if you like. So as you said, the, Fitzroy, um, who was one of the originators of what later became the Met Office, he coined the word forecast, mm-hmm. right? So the Met Office can justifiably claim to have done the world's first weather forecast. They can do, yes. All right, brilliant. So what year was that then? That was in 1861. Okay. Um, and he, he decided that he needed to come up with a new type of, wo- with a new word for yeah. what he was doing because he was kind of, for- he was producing the new science of meteorology mm. and he wanted it to be a scientific word. And previously people talked about foretelling the weather or prophesying the weather. And it was all far too sort of crystal ball for him. So he wanted a word that sounded more scientific. So he came up with forecast. Oh, now that's interesting. So the word meteorology. So I can trump you on your 1861. <laughs> oh, yes. I can go back to 340 BC <laughs> with Aristotle, who uh, wrote uh, a book, I guess, uh, called Meteorologica, I think is how you pronounce it, uh, which is a very much a philosophical treatise, but I think lots of ideas in there actually have some basis in reality and things we might recognise today. I also think a lot of it doesn't have some basis in reality. So people have been thinking about, if you like, the sort of science or natural philosophy of the, of the weather and how that works for, for a long time. And then we have this watershed moment when... Um, when we started trying to have an organised way of forecasting the weather. So briefly, what was the motivation for these first official weather forecasts by Fitzroy then? Oh, well, that came out of a massive storm in 1859, which is known as the Royal Charter Gale. 
Um, and the, the result of that gale was that a number of ships went down around the coast, including the Royal Charter, right. um, which went down off Anglesey and with a loss of about 450 lives. Um, it was big news at the time. It was in all the newspapers and everybody sort of went, we should have been able to, to warn the ships that this was coming. Why can't we do something? Um, so it, the, the Met Office had been in existence since 1854, so it was, it was already collecting data. They just weren't doing any forecasting. Uh, right. It wasn't actually believed possible to forecast. Um, so Fitzroy just went, we could have seen this coming, and he produced a series of charts that proved they understood everything that was going on. Um, so he persuaded the government to let him start a storm warnings forecast. That still exists, we now know it's the shipping forecast. Yeah. Um, and then slightly later on in the year, he started his public weather forecasts. So these weather forecasts were very different in those days from the kind of forecasts yeah. we do now. Claire, what, what are the main differences then between... The, how did these forecasts really work, these original forecasts? Well, my understanding back then, it was really all about shipping, wasn't it? Whereas today, there's much more of a focus on people on land. Um, people have obviously always been interested in farming through the years. That's where a lot of this folklore has come from. So... Uh, Back then, there was no computing, yeah. you know, there was no satellites, we didn't have uh, observations from over the seas. So, my f- interpretation is that actually uh, it's sort of telecommunications that came along mm. at the time, really revolutionised what was possible because all of a sudden you were able to get news from the coast into London. That's which right, I guess information, is much more information superhighway of the day, right? Yeah, yeah, the, te- yeah the telegraph right. office. I mean, the Met office was literally next door to a telegraph yeah. office so that new information so, could be passed so backwards and forwards. It's maybe worth digging into to why that was. So as I understand it, these initial forecasts were what we might nowadays refer to as a nowcast, in that what they were doing is they were taking the state of the weather at some point upwind of a location basically telephoning the people downwind and saying this is what the weather's like and they, they, they expect to get that weather in half an hour's time, you know. So they're, they're literally just looking at the way these, these weather features are moving um, by taking observations and combining them with wind. But I think they were giving forecasts out to sort of the next day, yeah. two days, so it was a bit more sophisticated than so, just saying, you know, it's currently raining in Anglesey, it's probably going to rain in London in a couple of hours' time. Yeah, they were definitely trying to go for at least 24 hours ahead, because that was the only way they could get their warnings out. So how were they constructing these forecasts? And I thought they were just doing now casting, but it sounds like they might have been doing more, so, you know, slightly getting into the area of statistical forecasting, is that right? Well, they've certainly been you know, following patterns, you know, yeah. it was... It was they, they understood synchronous, you know, the importance of synchronous data. So, you know, nine o'clock values from everywhere. Um, they had information coming in from as far down as Biscay. So you know, they, they had some, some you know, reasonable warning of weather coming in. Um, I don't know how far it was, um, it was statistical, but certainly they were, they were certainly modelling patterns in this yeah, data. Yeah, that's interesting. So the, the crucial thing is that they weren't really using fundamental physical understanding, I suppose, to, to construct these forecasts? Not in the way we might think about it now. Yeah. Right? Certainly not in terms of equations mm. and, you know, understanding the real dynamics of the atmosphere. That all came a little bit later, but it was starting to be developed. I think thinking was going in that way. It's more about the sort of the turn of the century, so, you know, early 1900s, where you start getting into... The physics development, so as who, you might call who it. Knew, who knows the name of the guy who first proposed physical weather forecast then? Oh, well, now that's interesting. It depends what you mean. So there was this Norwegian school uh-huh. who were very instrumental around that time. And then, and then we have 
Lewis Fry Richardson comes along sort of go. at that time and shortly after. So, yeah. hey, excellent. Is that my star point for this week? Yeah, that's, what, that's the You've got for. the name. So, so Lewis Fry Richardson in 1922, I believe, he proposed running a, a physical model. So what do we mean by a physical model as opposed to a statistical model? I think this is a really important point, this one. All yours, Claire. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> and to listeners, the physical model, you might think of something you can actually build and make well, with your hands. Yeah. So that's not what we mean. A statistical model is using information, climatology, uh, looking at trends and using that to say what might happen in the future so, based on what we know. So Whereas, by climatology, we mean basically what tends to happen on the 25th of August every year in history. That's a pretty good starting place for a forecast. We yeah, well, perhaps a- not that specific, the 22nd of August, but, you know, that range, sort of yeah. mid-August, were yeah. typical trends. And, you know, it's, it's not always the same. You see a lot of variability just mm. naturally. So that would be your statistical right. example. And then Lewis Fry Richardson was the first guy to say, by taking the fundamental laws of physics that govern the atmosphere, we might be able to use those to, to have a go at calculating what's going to happen. So, so he took the kind of laws that you can test on a lab workbench, right? So if you take a bunch of air and you try and shove it through a tube, what happens, right? What happens to the air? Does it speed up and does it heat up and things? Or if you take some air and you heat it up, what happens to it? I mean, if you think of a hot air balloon, we might we know nowadays that this, this causes the air to rise, right? Mm-hmm. So these kind of physical laws can be described by fairly uh, basic uh, physics and physical equations. So Lewis Fry Richardson proposed combining these kind of equations to, to really physically predict what was going to happen in the future rather than just make a good guess based on what had happened in the past, right? Yeah, and the really cool thing actually about Lewis Fry Richardson is that he came up with this idea of a forecast factory. So one way to maybe visualise this is if you think of, you divide the world up into a load of squares and in each of those squares you put a human being and you give them a calculator and his set of equations and you say, right, go ahead, work out those equations... After a certain time, go and speak to the person next to you and find out what's changing. Um, and back in the early 1900s, doing that wasn't really physically possible. But when you look at what we're doing now with supercomputers and computer modelling, it's really very similar to this kind of concept that Lewis Fry Richardson came up with nearly 100 years ago. So I found some information saying that he reckoned you need 64,000 people. <laughs> to, Did he really? To do one <laughs> forecast. So that would be one person representing each sort of grid square, madly scribbling away on a bit of paper. And he called these people computers, I believe, because they were doing computations. Okay, um, okay. So did he work out how long it would also well, take them to do a I forecast. think this is the other problem, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was considerably longer than it would, than was actually physically possible, I think. So there's a story I heard, and I can't remember if this is Lewis Fry Richardson or not. There was a guy in the First World War who was trying to do physical forecasts on his own. And I think he was a medic. Does that, send, does that ring a bell with anybody? Blank looks from everyone yeah. else. Say <laughs> so you want to meet. Okay, I'll need to go and Google that one. <laughs> um, okay, so Lewis Fry Richardson introduced these, these physics-based models. Uh, well, we talk about models, actually. We should maybe quickly say, by a model, it's basically just a posh sum, right? It's just... We take lots of, lots of equations, we take lots of observations, we crank the handle through these equations and we get out a representation of the atmosphere in the future, right? So we refer to this as a model, as a way of representing the atmosphere. 
So Lewis Fry Richardson introduced these, this first set of physical, using these physical equations. But as we were saying, they take an awfully long time and they need an awfully uh, a lot of people. So really, it wasn't until the advent of computers that we got to use we these practically. Properly, yeah. yeah. So when when did that happen? Well, the first of the Metoffice used its first supercomputer in the 1950s, but that didn't actually belong to the Metoffice. It belonged to the University of Manchester. Um, so, oh, so I didn't I, know that. I spent Ten years as a researcher at the University of Manchester. Oh, so well, I'm there you pleased go. to see yet again. Manchester's <laughs> leading the way. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So and then we actually bought our own in the 1960s. Um, so I suppose we were we were kind of regularly using it from then. And compared to the computing power that we're investing in now, you know, listeners might have heard about our new supercomputer. Just how small is that sort of computing um, back well, in that time? I mean, I was just I was just recently looking at some of the tenders for you know some of those early computers, and I mean it's it's, it's less considerably less than the power of one pretty basic mobile phone. Yeah. You know. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> Now, as a little treat, we're going to hand you over to another member of our podcast team, Doug McNeil, who we've dispatched to have a quick chat with Dr. Philip Brohan about a very interesting online data project that sits neatly under this episode's theme. I'm here with uh, Philip Brohan. Thanks very much for coming, Philip. And Philip is a, uh, a researcher at the uh, Hadley Centre, the Met Office Hadley Centre in Climate, but he's also heavily involved in a project called Old Weather. So would you like to describe Old Weather and tell us a little bit, bit about the objectives, Philip, of Old Weather? Oh, thanks, Doug. Yes, so I'm a, I'm a historical climatologist here at the Met Office. So my job essentially is to work out what the weather was like 100 years ago so we can compare it to the present day. And obviously, if you want to know what the weather was like 100 years ago, we use fundamentally the same approach that we do in the present day. We need to observe it. We need people out there with barometers and thermometers and other weather instruments collecting information. We need to collect that information and use it to reconstruct the weather. And it turns out, if you go back 100 or even 200 years, there were a lot of people measuring the weather. There were a lot of people out there, as they are at the present day, scientists, members of the public, out there making their own observations, and they tended to record them. Very often they wrote them down very carefully in diaries or documents or logbooks. Okay? And that's information that we need for present-day climate research, to put our present observations in context. So one of the things we're actually doing is wandering around, looking in archives, all sorts of historical records. The archives here at the Met Office, the National Archives down in London, equivalent buildings over in the US and elsewhere, and we're finding all the documents that they have that have old weather observations in them. Now, if you think about how much such information there must be, you rapidly realise there's a lot. So what we found fairly early on is that there are millions of pages of documents buried in the, in the bowels of the world's archives with really interesting and useful information on them. And we're looking particularly for quantitative data. People out there making a measurement with their barometer and saying, today in Basingstoke, the pressure was 29.86 inches of mercury. But not only in Basingstoke, I, I understand. No, no, not only in Basingstoke. Our ambition, obviously, is to get observations from everywhere in the world. Okay? And particularly here in the UK, we work very heavily on ship data. Okay? So if you want to understand how the weather varies across the whole world, the world's 70% sea, we actually need observations from the oceans as well as the land. And because of the, uh, because of the history of the, of the UK, we were very much a maritime power. We had a very large fleet of ships. So our archives contain a remarkably large number of ship observations. They care a lot about the weather. So if you go and look in a ship's logbook, you'll discover that several times a day they recorded the temperature, the pressure, the wind speed and direction. 
And for government ships, at least those documents have been kept. So we're rooting through all those logbook records, all millions and millions of pages of them. So you mentioned you've got millions and millions of, of observations and archives. How are you going about um, getting those into a useful and usable format? Well, that's actually one of the big challenges. So really, we've got to read them. Okay. Um, computers haven't yet reached the point where they can read historical handwritten documents, so they need to be read by a human. And there aren't very many of us working in the field of historical climatology professionally, so it would take me much more than the rest of my life to go down to the archives and read them all myself. So we've tried to get assistance from the general public. So we're running a volunteer research project, a citizen science project. We call it Old Weather, and if you point your web browser at www.oldweather.org, you can see it for yourself. And the idea is fundamentally that we take photographs of these paper documents, we put them on the web, and we ask people to help them read us, to type in the pressure readings and the temperature readings and the latitudes and longitudes of the ships and rescue that information for us using climate research. That's amazing. So, so you've got how many people are out there at the moment or how many people have you had uh, uh, on this old weather project um, transcribing these? Last time, last time I counted them, 19,683 people had read at least one page for us and typed in the numbers. And that was a few weeks ago, so let's go for uh, nearly 20,000 20, people, people have contributed. And are they all across the world, or are they sort of mostly in the UK or Europe? Or? About a third of them are from the UK, about a third of them are from the US, and about a third of them are from the rest of the world. So we do have a remarkably diverse group of people. Okay. That's fantastic. So, so tell me a little bit about uh, what's going to happen to this information and uh, this weather information when you've uh, got it transcribed into this usable form. So our fundamental aim is to understand how the weather has varied over the last 200 years. And to do that, we combine our historical observations with modern weather technology. So essentially, we take the observations as they come in, as the volunteers are transcribing them for us, and we make what's called an analysis. We run the standard supercomputer programs that we use every day in running the weather forecast here at the Metaphysics, except we run them for 100 years ago. In fact, we run them for every day over the past 200 years. And we combine those, uh, the, the, the complex programs on the supercomputers with the historical observations that we've rescued from the logbooks, and we make a comprehensive picture of how the global atmosphere has varied hour by hour over the last 200 years. So you've literally got the weather for, for, for the last 200 years rescued, the information rescued from these logbooks. That's the ambition. And in some places, our ability to reconstruct that weather is very good. So here in the UK, for example, our reconstruction over the last 200 years is fairly accurate because here in the UK we have weather observations that cover that whole period. But if you were to head out into the middle of the South Pacific, we can still run the supercomputer, but our answers are very uncertain because we don't have enough observations. So whilst we can do this reconstruction and we can reconstruct the weather for 200 years, our reconstructions are very uncertain over much of the world. And to remove that uncertainty, we need to put more historical weather observations in them, which is why we're rooting through the archives, looking for more records and digitising them. It's a long-term process. It, it sounds like a really long-term process, but what, what have you got coming up next? What's your, uh, or what are you doing at the moment, and, and what's your plan for the next bit of the project? So at the moment, on old weather, we're looking at a particular set of logbook data that come from the National Archives in the US. And we looked particularly at the ships in that collection that had sailed to the Arctic because the Arctic Ocean is very badly observed. There are and were very few people up there. So that's an area where we felt you know, we could make the most difference by putting in some extra observations. We can learn about sea ice variation and about weather variation. 
What we're doing next is we'd like to expand that work with some different sources of information. So very recently we've teamed up with the New Bedford Whaling Museum in the US and we're looking at a different sort of logbook. We're looking at logbooks from whaling ships. And whaling ships also go to the Arctic. It was the best place to hunt whales right along the edge of the sea ice in the Arctic Ocean. They also have weather observations. So we've just produced a new version of the old weather website with a different sort of logbook to look, look, to, to look at. So if you've ever read Moby Dick and you've wondered what they're actually doing, you can now read the actual records of people doing that sort of activity, sailing around the world in search of whales. And while you're reading those logbooks, if you wouldn't mind, please, you know, type in some pressures and temperatures for us and we can add that to our scientific reconstructions as well. Oh, that does sound really interesting. It sounds like you might get some interesting stories and information out of those uh, logbooks uh, as, you're, as you're transcribing them. So as a scientist, you know, the fundamental aim of the project is to reconstruct the weather. But actually, most of the people who are working with us to read the logbooks like reading them for the other things that are in them. So a ship's logbook is the fundamental record of what went on on board the ship. And in there, you can get anything. So we've taken military ships from the UK Navy, and we have interesting records from big battles, like the Battle of the Falkland Islands in the First World War. Okay. We've taken records from the logbooks, uh, from, uh, for example, from the Greedy Relief Expedition in 1884, which was people sailing up uh, through Baffin Bay to attempt to rescue a, uh, a doomed uh, Arctic expedition. Okay. We haven't yet got any of the logbooks from the whaling records, but I'm still quite keen to see what they're like. We get records of people and individuals, uh, usually people getting into trouble for drinking too much gin. Okay. And obviously, you know, the ships, they didn't go out there to measure the weather. That was only a secondary account. So we get uh, the, uh, the, uh, the accounts of um, the, uh, the influence of the ship uh, particularly our US records, for example, spent a lot of time uh, sailing around um, uh, the, uh, the Arctic coast of the US, mm-hmm. uh, servicing the, the fishing villages in that particular area. So there are stories in there of people and events, as well as the weather data. And every different sort of logbook we look at has a different sort of story to be learned. And you mentioned different sorts of logbook there. Is there a, a limit to the to the to the time machine that you have, uh, how far do you think we can go back in time with this kind of approach? Well, the barometer was invented in 1643, and the thermometer was standardised by Fahrenheit in about 1725. The earliest record I've found anywhere that's got any sort of useful data actually dates from 1699. But let's be honest. Okay, I think realistically at the moment, the earliest period we've worked at is about the 1780s. So we've actually got the records from James Cook, from his uh, second circumnavigation, he took um, three thermometers and a barometer with him. Okay. We've got records from the English East India Company in the 1780s. We've done useful, if limited, reconstructions of the weather in the early 19th century. So the last 200 years, really, is about the right period. Okay, and you mentioned the, the, the late 18th century maybe there, and that sounds like an interesting period in that it's really um, before the Industrial Revolution got kicked off and we started altering the chemistry of the atmosphere. So is this providing um, a useful sort of context for our, for our climate change projections? Um, in a sense, uh, it is, yes. So uh, our understanding of long-term uh, te- uh, climate variability depends obviously not just on thermometer and barometer records, but reconstructions from other purposes. But if you're a, a, a paleoclimatologist and you collect data from ice cores or trees, for example, you need information to calibrate your reconstructions from. And actually, that's one of the things we provide with early observational data. 
So you say quite correctly, of course, that the early 19th century was an interesting period. It was, in fact, a remarkably cold period by modern standards. Okay? The Dalton uh, solar minimum and the large volcanic eruptions uh, around about uh, 1810 to 1820 produced uh, a, a cool decade. And that's actually an interesting period to study because it gives us the biggest possible contrast with the fairly warm present day. It sounds like a fantastic project, Philip. So uh, how, do, how do people get involved and, and what do they do when they get to your website? Well, uh, if anyone wants to get involved, we'd certainly encourage that. Please do come and help. The website is oldweather.org. Okay? And all you need to do is go to the website and follow the instructions. So what you will do when you get there is you'll be able to choose a ship and you'll be able to follow along with the course of that particular ship. There's a fairly clear user interface telling you what to rescue from, there, from, 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 from the pages that you read. And you'll also see on that site an opportunity to get involved in using the data and interacting with the other users. There's a discussion forum and a blog where we share all the results of the work. Thanks very much for talking to us about old weather, Philip. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I've got here written 1959 was when we first started using computers to regularly do dynamic forecasts. So what I think is really cool about these forecasts we do with the computer is that they take these fundamental laws of physics, like I was talking about, that actually are sort of, you know, two or three hundred year old laws from the Industrial Revolution. They're the same laws that govern how steam engines work and things like this, right? And by taking these, the model... The supercomputer, when it runs these on a, on a rotating sphere, you know, for the, the whole globe, all these weather phenomena we know just spring into existence, right? We don't tell the weather forecasting model to go make a storm. It just knows what happens to air when you push it through a tube or what happens to air when you heat it up. And these storms appear in the model. I just think that's awesome, right? We're creating this little virtual reality world that, that kind of creates all these weather phenomena for us. Good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, even even as far back as um, as Fitzroy, who wrote this, um, this weather book. Um, I mean, he was talking about you know, what we now consider as the uh, um, as polar, polar air masses and um, maritime air masses, and and, mm. and he talks about sort of the the way they move and the way they meet. Um, and okay, he's kind of constructing that image in words, if you like, rather than as a computer model, mm. um, or as, a, you know, as something magically appearing on a screen. But you know, even then, there's there's actually without the physics, but there's kind of a really fundamental understanding of you know these two come together and this is mm. going to happen. So we've talked about all these watershed moments we've had: the wireless telegraph in the early 1900s. We've had the first dynamic models in the 20s. Uh, we've had the advent of supercomputers to run those models in the late 50s. What do you think the next watershed moment is for weather forecasting, in your opinion? That's a good question. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> put I, us all on the spot there. One of the things that is uh, coming along in, say, the last five years is the use of ensemble modelling. Mm, so this is not just using your one realisation of the atmosphere to do your model. Your, weather model, but then running it multiple times, taking into account the fact that, although, yeah, we can represent these storms, we don't know exactly where they might have been or exactly the state of the atmosphere. So there's always this element of chaos in the system. And so if we run our models starting on slightly different weather situations, we can see whether they run to the same forecast, in which case we have very high confidence, or whether they diverge and we see different weather patterns emerging, which means we have 
less confidence uh, in potentially where the forecast is going to go 5, 10, 20 days ahead. So this is this idea of chaos theory, isn't it? This is like, it's an area of mathematical research now, but it was actually discovered in weather forecasting by Lorentz? Oh, quite possibly. Yeah. Butterflies yeah. and all the rest so of that. I yes. yes. <laughs> and I, I, the guy who discovered it, I'm sure, was running a weather model, went to reproduce his model and accidentally cut off, you know, the 15th decimal place from the number when he was starting the model and got a completely different yes. answer. And the point was that before that discovery, we would have assumed that, you know, you basically were putting the same numbers into your calculation again. You just changed a very, very tiny part of it. But that was enough to significantly change the output. And the reason is because the, this physical system is inherently chaotic, it's called now. We know that, you know, we had to coin this word, but it means that it's very sensitive to these, these starting parameters. So as you're saying... By running these models lots of times, we can get an idea of what this kind of spread might be. And that, that represents the uncertainty in actual physical reality, right? Mm. You know, this is really the uncertainty of, of the world and what it's going to do, which I think is really cool. Some of the uncertainty in that, we have to remember, is because we don't understand all of these equations as well. So mm. uh, Lewis Fry Richardson had to make simplifications because he knew he couldn't get However many people, how many people was it? 64,000 people and he couldn't take four days to produce the forecast for tomorrow. So in the same way, we're still slightly constrained by how much detail we can represent some of this physics in, both in terms of, you know, understanding the mathematics, but we can't do modelling on, you know, the scale of a metre by a metre at the moment. We're, we're getting down to much smaller scales, but still to model the globe, you're having to represent... So that's, I mean, that's absolutely true, isn't it? But um, I think the interesting thing about chaos theory is that in principle, if we had a perfect physical model, it would still not be able to predict uh, the same forecast every time because physical reality, it's uncertain what's going to happen, which I think is really interesting. It's sort of like in real philosophical territory, isn't it? It is. Where's, where's the boundary at which actually you, you lose the ability to produce what we would call a deterministic forecast, yeah. which is, you know, something you're quite confident about. Is, and, and we've been pushing that boundary mm. as technology has advanced since, you know, the 1950s. So our forecasts now are as accurate for three days as they were for one, day. one day, you know. So we keep pushing how far we can go into chaos, I think, which is interesting. So just yeah, when, you, when you think, like, when we first started, they didn't actually think you could forecast because the, the, the understanding, okay, they, we didn't have chaos theory, but it was kind of, it's so changeable. You know, how can mm. you possibly forecast weather for the land? It's just not possible, which so, is one of the reasons why they actually stopped the Met Office forecasting for a while, because they didn't believe it was possible to forecast. Did they really? When was that? Yeah, after the death of uh, Robert Fitzroy in 1865, um, the, the scientific community had been very anti this concept of forecasts because they just thought they were too, uh, too inaccurate, we didn't understand enough, you just couldn't do it. Um, so they pushed for, the, for a report which was called the Galton Report um, and that basically reported that the Met Office didn't know what it was doing and it couldn't forecast um, and, it just, it, and so they just stopped it dead. Um, and it took about 20 years to be able to restart forecasting again. So I think it's worth bearing in mind that we are trying to predict the future. You know, it's, yeah. it's an inherently hard thing to be doing. Um, I mean, historically, and I'm talking way before the Met Office, um, predicting the future, predicting the weather was actually illegal under the Sorcery Act. Really? Because it was seen mm. as a sort of prophecy. That's my you know, favourite. Witch, witchcraft. 
That's my favourite fact of the episode, for sure. <laughs> I win. That's, yeah, that's brilliant. brilliant. Yeah. 1548, Henry VIII actually outlawed weather forecasting. Love it. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, and I don't think this quite trumps that fact, but... Um, <laughs> I discovered the Salem Witch Trials, which mm-hmm. happened in America, sort of end of the 1600s, early 1700s. There's a potential link to the weather there mm-hmm. with the women thought to be being responsible for the cold weather that was occurring at the time, yeah. which then might have led them to be rounded up and tried as witches, which <laughs> is incredible, really. <laughs> but I had no idea. And I guess there were other examples like that through time where predicting, forecasting the weather has been seen as a dangerous Yeah, thing I mean, to be certainly doing. You know, there, was, there was always this assumption that God was responsible for the weather. So, I mean, we have um, a series of proclamations in mm. the archive which basically sort of state, you know, oh, we've obviously been, you know, been terribly bad and that is the reason why we're having, you know, a particularly dry period or a particularly cold period. Um, and, you know, it's, it's all God punishing us. They're still legally referred to as acts of God and insurance documents they are, and yes. stuff, aren't they? Mm. Good point, so yes. just to rewind slightly, there's another thing which I think probably totally changed the way we do forecasts, which was the advent of weather satellites, mm. which is worth remembering. So Absolutely. you're only as good as your starting point with these weather forecasts, right? And one of the... So traditionally, as a lot of listeners might know, we've got a bunch of people who release weather balloons and we've got weather stations and all these measurements um, get gathered every time we make a weather forecast and they go into the term is initialising the forecast. So this is just giving our supercomputer a place to start, to work forwards in time. Um, But when satellites came along, obviously we now get much more total coverage to start our forecast with. So that happened in the sort of late 70s and early 80s. I think that was probably a real watershed moment for the way we we initialise our forecasts anyway. Yeah, we've got a couple of those really early images in the archive and it's actually, it's really interesting to see just how accurate they are. I mean, we we weren't getting those pictures through as frequently as we Mm. do. I think that was the big change over time has been how how regularly we now receive those images. Um, But you look even at those early ones and you can clearly pick out new storm systems and and what's going on. Yeah, you can imagine what a revelation that must have been. Absolutely. Coming through on a printer for the first time. It must have been incredible. And now there are so many more satellites up in space. The quality, the amount of detail they're able to see and and how much data is flowing now is just phenomenal, actually. So so we initialise the weather forecast from all kinds of sources and people maybe don't realise just how many they are. Maybe satellites is quite obvious and weather stations and weather balloons, but we also have instruments on civil aircraft and... Uh, on ships and ocean boys. We even use, do you guys know that we use elephant seals? No, I have heard this. There's there's a really valuable climate data set where we get friendly elephant seals to wear an instrumented hat and they can basically... I want a picture of that for the archive. (laughs) So apparently apparently, um, male elephant seals with bulbous heads are considered rather virile and attractive by lady elephant seals and so I've been told that uh, it seems to be a bit of a boon for the male elephant seals but the the beauty of using these seals is they have to breathe. So when they go under the ice uh, to go and fish or whatever elephant seals do, they come back again to the surface, unlike ocean boys, which means that it's much easier to transmit the data back. So to wrap up, I thought we could have a talk about, seeing as this is weather forecasting through time, what the future of weather forecasting holds. I don't know if you guys have got any thoughts on that. So for instance, a lot of listeners might know the the Met Office has recently started installing a brand new supercomputer. So this is going to be 
obscenely powerful and uh, useful supercomputer, which means that we can do what? Produce better weather forecasts? That's the intention. Yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> we just talked about all these vast amounts of satellite data that's coming yeah. in. So you need to be able to handle that. You need to be able to incorporate that in the models and try and replicate this high level of detail, really, and, and use that. That's really interesting that the first thing you talked about was the satellite observations. Because I think a lot of people maybe don't realise that we spend a lot of time actually processing all these different observations so we can give them to the model. That's, that's a non-trivial thing to do. It's really hard. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, this is called data assimilation, right? This is something that presumably well, the new supercomputer will help us with. I mean, the, the other thing that you can do every time you get a more powerful computer is just crank up the resolution of your model. So every time we talked earlier, didn't we, about having uh, grids, you know, different boxes where we calculate numbers in the weather forecast. Every time you get a more powerful computer, you can make that box smaller, right? Which gives you a more precise weather forecast. So we also touched on ensembles earlier. I think that's, presumably that's going to be somewhere where we use the supercomputer. Yep. Again, it's the idea of when you're running these multiple simulations, you obviously need a lot more computer power and you want to be able to run those again at the higher spatial and temporal resolution. So that's how frequently are you providing outputs in time and doing all of these calculations. So you want to be able to do those uh, more frequently in time to get better idea of what's happening. So being able to run lots more of these different what we call ensemble members on a new supercomputer because of the increasing computing power is really helpful. The other thing with the supercomputer though, we're very much talking about weather forecasting today, but slightly further afield or maybe, you know, tens, hundreds of years, we've got that kind of climate outlook and the climate climate modelling side of things as well. And that's one of the big things that supercomputers are going to help with too. So mm. whilst we haven't really considered that, understanding what the world's going to look like in 100 years is also a really big thing that the supercomputer will be used for. Yeah, ar arguably, that's super long-term weather forecasting, isn't it? I mean, there's, you know, there's a semantic difference between weather and climate, but essentially we're using... And in fact, the Met Office is renowned for using the same physical model for its weather forecasts as for its climate forecasts. And by sort of combining the expertise in these two areas, we can really refine the way the physics is used in these models. So... Um, so, yeah, we're, we're running the same calculation forward just a longer time. So, yeah, all this old data is helping us to understand our climate model, which is the same physics and dynamics in our weather forecasting mm. model. So, actually, these guys that were had thermometers in their back gardens sort of in the 1700s are contributing to today's efforts for forecasting. Yeah, yeah it's amazing, really. Yeah. And making it more accurate going forwards as well. Yeah, incredible. So uh, how far back do we actually have records? I'm really intrigued. <laughs> well, our, obviously our, our official Met Office records start in, the 18, in 1854. Okay. Um, but before that, we have a lot of private weather diaries. Um, and they can take us back to, well, the very earliest, about the, about the late 1600s. But kind of, you know, where you've got recorded um, numerical data essentially is kind of sort of mid 1700s onwards so that's the central england temperature right this is one of the oldest temperature series yeah in the world. some some of it is it feeds into that not mm. everything um that's in the cet is actually in our archive that came from a number of different right. sources but yes um you know that's that's one of the longest running series but we do have things that run a bit before that so our yeah. today's weather is basically based on 300 years' worth of <laughs> observations and data yeah. to help us get where we are to now. And I suppose that's one of the big things about weather forecasting in the future, to come back to your point, Neil, mm. is every day we observe more and we learn more and we see new things and we understand it, which will 
help us to do a better job tomorrow mm. and two years into the future, five years into the future. So it's, it's always an exciting time to be involved in the weather, I think. And that's the end of our first episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, we would massively appreciate it if you left us a review or any other feedback. Also, if you've got any questions to ask us, ideas for episode themes, or if you just want to tell us what we got wrong, you can email us at mostlyweather at metoffice.gov.uk. Mm.